Hello and welcome to How Westminster Works, a podcast from Politics Home that takes a deep dive into the history, quirks and peculiar practices of UK politics. I'm your host Alan Tolhurst, and on this week's episode we'll be looking at how a normal member of the public makes the leap from their day job to the House of Commons to become an MP. We spoke to journalists, plus former and prospective parliamentary candidates vying to stand at the next election about how different political parties go about selecting future representatives of Parliament, and what works and what doesn't work about the process. Pretty much anyone can run to be an independent MP when there's an election or by-election. You just need to be over 18 years old, a UK citizen, and not currently hold a politically restricted role, such as a police officer, civil servant or judge. Once you've paid the £500 deposit, your name can go on the ballot paper and you're free to campaign. Be warned though, you will lose that £500 if you don't get at least 5% of the votes, which realistically means convincing hundreds, if not thousands of people to vote for you. But if you want to have a good chance of actually getting elected and keeping your deposit, the best way is to run as a candidate for one of the main parties in the Commons, such as Labour, the Conservatives, the Lib Dems or the SNP. Each party has a slightly different process for how they pick candidates ahead of a general election. Broadcaster and veteran political journalist Michael Crick explains the basics of each system are largely the same. He has been following the selection process closely and has even started a Twitter account called Tomorrow's MPs to share information about the process. These days, generally we'll have a meeting uh, of the membership. So members in that area, which may range from just a few dozen people uh, to two or 3,000 people, will be invited along to a meeting to consider the shortlist of candidates but before the the shortlist will have been whittled down from a wider number of people I mean sometimes hundreds of people apply um, to be the the candidate in a safe seat Um, and that 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 figure is whittled down by the executive committee of the local party the party officials locally in conjunction often with the party headquarters and the arrangements for all of this you know, vary from party to party, and they also keep changing. So it's very difficult to sort of lay down uh, a set procedure. And also the arrangements change um, when it comes to the, you know, the immediately, uh, when, when a general election is called, the whole process is speeded up and the central party tends to uh, start imposing candidates and the local members get a lot less say. Although candidates typically apply via the local branch of their chosen party, the party HQ still has a lot of say over who can run to be an MP. To run for the Conservative Party, prospective candidates have to go through something called a Parliamentary Assessment Board, where they are grilled for up to five hours by a panel of MPs and party officials. If they pass, they get put on an approved candidates list and can start applying for any seats that take their fancy. Labour used to leave most of the process to the local party branches, with candidate longlists drawn up by a board consisting of party members, unions and a representative from the party's national executive. But under new rules brought in under current leader Keir Starmer early this year, these longlists are now drawn up at a national level, giving local branches much less control over the process. Some saw this change as a reaction to Labour's selection process under Jeremy Corbyn at the previous two general elections, which produced some rather controversial MPs. So there were 24 people elected in 2017 for the Labour Party in seats which the Labour Party gained from the Conservatives um, and where the selection process had, it, it, was, it was utterly negligent. They, did, they didn't even interview the people. They just looked at what the, their applications and their CVs and decided on the basis of that. And as a result, they ended up with dreadful MPs like Jared Amara uh, in Sheffield Hallam and Fiona Onastanya in Peterborough who ended up going to jail. Um, and... Um, uh, so and 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 they used the excuse of a snap election not to hold up 
proper selection processes, when in fact that election campaign was just about the longest election campaign in modern history. There was plenty of time to go through all of these processes and let the local members ask questions of uh, some of these contenders. I think if Jared Amara had actually had to go before the Labour members of Sheffield Hallam and they would have had asked him questions, they might have realised how he, how unsuited he was to being an MP and they wouldn't have had the terrible problems that they subsequently had and he resigned from the party. One person with plenty of experience of the process of becoming an MP is Labour's former Shadow Health Secretary Heidi Alexander, who held the seat for Lewisham East between 2010 and 2018. While the Conservatives have yet to kick off their selection process the next election, expected in 2024, Labour is already in full swing. Heidi has been picked as a prospective candidate for their home seat of Swindon South. The seat is currently held by Conservative MP Robert Buckland, with a majority of over 6,500 votes. But the prospect of trying to unseat a cabinet minister hasn't put Heidi off. I wanted to represent a place that meant something to me. And if that meant representing a place where I got selected as a candidate and then the election was going to be a really, really tough fight, um, it, it felt really important to me that I had a connection and a link to the place. I didn't want to scour the country looking for a seat um, where I didn't feel I had that understanding of the place, its people, its concerns, its aspirations. Um, but interestingly, I, I would say, despite this being a harder seat to win at the next general election than perhaps Lewisham East was back in 2010, this process was actually more competitive. Once you're put on a shortlist for a parliamentary seat, the hopefuls vying for selection have to then schmooze the local members of whichever party you want to represent. This stage of the process traditionally involves a lot of phone canvassing, cups of tea in members' living rooms, and meetings with local affiliate groups. But, as Heidi explains, applicants are increasingly taking their efforts to social media in a bid to win the hearts and votes of their local party. What I did notice was very different this time round, was um, the the level of social media activity was totally different from 13 years ago. It felt more professionalised. Um, a number of the other candidates, um, you know, were, were clearly running up but gearing up to you know run quite serious campaigns in this selection um you know so a lot of you know graphics on social media if you look at candidates that are standing now certainly for the labor party in selections a number of them are putting out quite high quality video content early in the campaign um, that certainly wasn't something that existed back in 2009 in the same way what struck me about my selection was that, you know, I was camping out in my uh, parents' spare room for a couple of months between um, May and the end of July. Um, You know, it was literally me, a laptop and my Twitter account on my mum's dining room table. Um, And I think she was slightly getting a bit fed up about it at the end and wanted a dining room table back um but you know i think people can look at these selection campaigns from the outside and think oh there's this massive operation going on but the reality of it is pretty humble and quite different to be honest towards the end of the selection process the lucky few will likely be expected to take part in a hustings where they'll be grilled on everything from local issues to their positions on national policy members will then vote and a prospective parliamentary candidate is selected Only the members of each party get a say in the candidate, but previous administrations have experimented with a new approach to picking future MPs, where everyone in the constituency had a say. In 2009, the Conservative Party held a trial of a so-called primary elections in a number of areas with retiring MPs. One of the seats selected for the exercise was Totnes in Devon. 
It involves sending a postal ballot to all 69,000 registered voters in the constituency, allowing them to vote on the next Conservative Party candidate, regardless of their own affiliation. The process cost almost £40,000 for that seat alone, and resulted in the triumphant candidate, local GP Sarah Wollaston, winning for the Conservatives at the 2010 general election. But primaries haven't been used by the party since. Michael Crick has one theory as to why this happened. The idea was that the Conservatives would then choose candidates who were a little bit more typical of uh, local opinion, uh, the, the electorate as a whole, whereas if you leave it to the membership or to party activists, your candidates are more likely to be a bit, um, um, you know, a bit, uh, a bit more extreme, not extreme, too far away, but a bit, a bit, a bit further away perhaps from the centre uh, and less typical of the, of the electorate. And at that point, when Cameron initiated this, the Conservatives were in opposition and trying to win back uh, the hearts and minds of the British public. And that's why it happened. But, uh, but, but then when Sarah Wollaston became the MP for Totnes as a result of this process and started rebelling against Cameron's government, Cameron was heard to say that he would he would be, that would be that was the end of uh, primary elections thanks to Sarah Wollaston, and they have had one or two of them since. But uh, the trouble is they're expensive to carry out, and parties don't have money. Sarah Wollaston, of course, defected the Liberal Democrats in 2019 and lost her seat in the general election later that year. However, an MP hopeful gets elected, becoming the prospective candidate is only part of the battle. Adam Thompson was recently picked to represent the seat of Earwash in Derbyshire for Labour at the next general election. It's another seat currently held by a senior Conservative, the Vaccines Minister Maggie Throop. He told us about the selection process. You go through an interview to start with, uh, and then once you pass the interview, it's, it's basically a case of speaking to as many of the local members as you can. Uh, so I, you know, I d- distributed a, a little leaflet and made a lot of phone calls. And then, as you say, it went through to a hustings meeting and uh, there was a sort of an interview, I, I suppose, with the local members where I made a little speech and then they gave me some questions. But I wouldn't say it was gruelling at all, to be honest. I really enjoyed the experience. Uh, as I say, the, the kind of reason I got into this in the first place was because I like speaking to people and I like engaging with people. And although it was kind of member focused through the process, that was very much what it was about. So, no, I, I really enjoyed it, actually. While the date of the next general election will likely be in 2024, the volatility of government in recent years has kept many candidates on their toes in case a snap election is called. Either way, Adam knows he's got a long and challenging road ahead of him as he balances his day job as an academic with the consistent demands of local campaigning. You know, it's like doing two full-time jobs, right? I'm, I'm still in full-time employment. I'm a research fellow working in engineering at the University of Nottingham, and, and that's how I pay my bills, as it were. But the the vast majority of my spare time is spent being a candidate. And I think a lot of that is about leading that local team. We just talked about the the large team that I've got involved that will help me uh, to win the next general election. But my position as a candidate, I see as very much, you know, leading from the front of that team and uh, or, or even leading from the middle, I suppose, and spending a lot of time engaging with the local members, uh, motivating them, um, helping out with, as you say, it's quite an expensive process often, uh, but so fundraising will be a big part, uh, working with the local trade unions that I've got good links with and will continue to have good links with over time. So doing our best to raise funds and motivate members and uh, delegate all the difficult different tasks, because this is very much a, a team sport, as it were. Politics can't be done by one person. And uh, building that big team is, is going to be a big part of my life for the next couple of years. What local members look for in a future MP varies massively by seat, party and election year. 
But there's one debate that comes up time and time again. Should MPs be from the seats they're running to represent? On the one hand, it's good for an MP to have a native understanding of the area, from local bus routes and local football teams, to who are the movers and shakers on the borough council. But, as Crick argues, getting hung up on the local links part of a candidate's CV could preclude many capable politicians. Certainly in the Labour Party and in the Liberal Democrats, there has been a, a very significant trend towards choosing candidates who have strong local connections, either live locally or serve as local councillors, or who were born there who, or who were grown up there. Um, in my view, that is a bit of a, um, a mistake, that trend, and that it is actually... Uh, endangers the chances of people who are very able and capable but don't have a particular locality that they can call their own or those people who were brought up in an area where the opposing party is dominant and therefore can never get expected ne never expect to get elected uh, to parliament from that area for instance conservatives who were brought up in the south wales mining valleys are never going to get elected there um, and if one takes the um, the, the argument that candidates have to be local to their logical extreme, then that then excludes um, large numbers of uh, possible, possibly very able people who would be uh, make good politicians. This isn't the only criticism that some observers have of the process for selecting the next intake of MPs. There are fears that the time and money involved in running for parliament, as well as the challenges of navigating local politics, could be putting off candidates from some walks of life. One area that gets a lot of focus on is the number of female MPs in parliament. Currently, out of 650 MPs in the Commons, just 225 identify as women. And some parties are faring much better than others in this regard. While Labour has achieved a 50-50 gender split amongst its MPs, only a quarter of Conservatives are women. One group looking to improve these figures is the charity 50-50 Parliament, which works on a cross-party basis to encourage more women into politics. Its founder, Frances Scott, tells us why she believes having an equal gender balance in Parliament is so important. We're meant to live in a representative democracy. And in fact, most people in the UK are women. Women outnumber men, you know, very slightly, about 52% of the population are women. But um, they are outnumbered in Parliament by two to one. And um, so we really need to be asking ourselves why it is that women are not participating and we need to ensure that they are able to participate properly and um, to be properly represented in the corridors of power. So that's why 5050 Parliament uh, has put together a friendly network of people um, here to help women progress in politics. And we work across the political spectrum with all the political parties. It's kind of a historic problem. Since women won the right to vote, I mean, women have only been involved properly in democracy for 100 years. Democracy has been around for 2,000 years. So women sort of won the right to vote just over 100 years ago. Well over 5,000 MPs have been elected in that time, but only 600 have been women. The gender balance in Parliament has dramatically improved in recent decades, and this change has often been attributed to the introduction of all-women shortlists in the selection process, a move that attracted significant backlash from some local associations. The policy was even challenged in court, and ultimately was found to be illegal under the Sex Discrimination Act in 1996. But this ruling came after the majority of all-women shortlist candidates had already been selected, and many went on to win their seats. The policy helped Labour to reach its goal of electing over 100 female MPs in the 1997 election, around a quarter of the party at the time. The Labour government went on to introduce a new law in 2001 which legalised positive discrimination in the selection of parliamentary candidates. 
All women shortlists have been used by the party at each election since, and have paved the way to Parliament for some of the party's most senior figures, including the first female Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, and current Shadow Cabinet members, Angela Rayner, Rachel Reeves, and Lisa Nandy. Labour announced this year, however, they will not be used in the future. So, is there a place for positive discrimination in candidate selection? Here's Francis Scott again. 5050 is not here to tell the political parties, or even Parliament, how to solve this problem. Um, we're just saying that there clearly is a problem, and this is the aspiration we should hopefully all share uh, in a belief that women should be able to participate fully in our democracy, including having equal seats and equal say. Um, and let's all work together to try and solve this historic problem. Um, we, therefore, encourage women to sign up to stand with us. And we run two programs, Ask Her to Stand and Sign Up to Stand. We'd like everybody to get involved in asking women to stand for elected office. There's plenty of evidence that women need to be asked three times before they might consider it. But once they're asked repeatedly, they might take the plunge into politics. Progress on gender balance hasn't been as fast as some would like. At the last election in 2019, only 12 extra women won their place in Parliament. At that rate, it could take over 50 years to reach a 50-50 split in the Commons. But why aren't women running for Parliament? And are similar obstacles faced by people from ethnic minorities or less affluent backgrounds? According to Isabel Hardman, assistant editor of The Spectator and author of the best-selling book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, the barriers to diversity in the Commons start during the selection process. And it also affects the makeup in the Commons in more subtle ways, because um, if you talk to people who are involved in either uh, of the main parties, Labour Women's Network or um, Women to Win in the Conservative Party, they'll say that the biggest barrier they have to overcome in getting women selected is that if you say to anyone, including someone on, on a local party selection panel, think of an MP, the first thing they will think of is a man in a suit. Um, and so instantly, when a woman comes into the room for her selection panel, she is out of the ordinary. And that's, you know, that's still the case, even though the proportion of female MPs is, is inching up slowly in, in Parliament. There's still that unconscious bias um, that you have to overcome. And then, you know, if you're if you're gay, if you're from an ethnic minority, if you're anything out of the sort of identikit first impression of an MP that people have, that's another barrier um, to overcome. Uh, if you look at party membership, it's not particularly representative of the, the, the general population uh, anyway, in terms of um, backgrounds, um, ethnicity and so on. But I think it's also, um, it's quite hard to quantify this, but it's probably not very representative of the... Um, uh, priorities and perspectives of the general population because you have to be a certain type of person to want to spend that much time involved in your local political party and um, with all the, um, the local politics and sort of um, fiefdoms that that often entails. Another hurdle for those hoping to run for parliament is the cost. You aren't paid as a prospective parliamentary candidate and many of the campaign costs come directly from your own pocket. Those wanting to become MPs are often required to balance their campaign commitments with day jobs and are sometimes forced to quit when the general election campaign gets into full swing. According to Isabel, this can result in costs reaching into the thousands, and sometimes even hundreds of thousands. So I did a, a study of, um, uh, I think it was about 600 candidates in the 2015 election, and um, they were from all sorts of different parties, you know, the, the three main ones, um, SNP, uh, including Monster Raising the Union Party, actually, um, responded to the study as well. And... Um, 
Uh, again, they were all sorts of different seats, um, safe seats, no hope fights and so on. But the average cost, personal cost, and that includes a lot of earnings to these candidates, was £11,000. Um, and then when you start to talk to those who stood in marginal seats, um, the figures just become just really shocking. So it's around sort of £30,000 for um, Labour candidates. Uh, a little bit more actually for Labour candidates who lost <laughs> their seats, so they were uh, they paid for this uh, the privilege of um, of working for free for a couple of years and then didn't have a job at the end of it to pay them back. Um, for, for Tories, I mean, I spoke to one Conservative who claimed that he spent five hundred and fifty thousand um, pounds standing uh, for Parliament. Now that involved obviously buying a house in the constituency, and it sounds to me like he bought quite a nice house. So um, perhaps we shouldn't feel too sorry for him. And indeed, I don't think. We necessarily need to sort of pity these people who've managed to find this money to shell out or at least a, a loan or a credit card um, that, that goes up to quite a big limit. Hurdles in the selection process matter because one of the main purposes of an MP is to scrutinise the policies that shape our daily lives. Sure, they also have to handle casework and represent their constituency in the Commons, but a large chunk of MPs' time is spent debating, picking apart and voting on our laws. Ambitious MPs also have a high chance of entering government, becoming secretaries of state or even being picked as prime minister. As Michael Crick points out, it's important for local associations to consider that the candidate they're grilling at their hostings could be overseeing life-changing policies in just a few years' time. Chris Mullin, the former MP for uh, Sunderland South, uh, who wrote uh, some well-known diaries, is very good on this. He says the primary purpose of an MP is not to deal with 3,000 constituency cases a year, of course, he's, he should do that. His office should do that. He has staff to do that. Um, and also, the, he should be relying a lot on local councillors to do that kind of work. But that the primary purpose of an MP is uh, to hold the government to account, hold people in power to account, to scrutinise legislation and decide whether it should go through Parliament and should be passed. Um, and, and third, uh, to be the you know one of the, the pool of people from whom uh, a government is chosen because a prime minister needs about 90 MPs to become ministers. And then, of course, he needs a backup, uh, you know, several dozen in reserve for when those ministers get tired or, you know, get the sack or <laughs> resign. So you actually do need a really decent pool of people in parliament to help form a government. And if you don't have people of great caliber and people of great, you know, got good minds, then the danger is there that they get they get dominated by the civil servants, um, who often are incredibly clever people, um, and so you can see why the party leadership uh, is quite keen to intervene in the process and 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 have some quality control. The fact is, it's quite hard to find out. Much of the selection process for MPs happens behind closed doors, with limited scrutiny from anyone outside the party. Though social media has allowed candidates to reach a broader audience than ever before, the decline of local media means many of these contests pass by unnoticed by the wider public. This is why Crick has set up his Twitter account, which shares information on the selection process, including the details of local gossip and the CVs of the MP hopefuls. It attracted thousands of followers within days of its launch, and has 19,000 followers at the time of recording. So, why does he think the process lacks scrutiny? I think the other reason why a lot of this process is kept so secret is that it gets very little media attention, especially these days when the local media, local newspapers, local radio are much weaker in their journalistic coverage and their coverage of politics. I mean, in the old days, say 50 years ago, often these selection processes would get a lot of local coverage. 
And sometimes journalists would be allowed into the meetings and be able to report on what contenders were saying and what questions they were being asked. Um, but um, very little of that happens anymore. And that's partly why I've set up this Twitter feed and hope to extend it into a university academic unit. Uh, I just think that, you know, the spotlight needs to be um, shed on, on what's going on in each case, or at least who the contenders are, and give people, members of the public and other people the opportunity to say, well, hang on a moment there. You shouldn't think about this guy here. You know, he, he groped me in a club three years ago or he, he defrauded me of uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds or whatever. And I, I do think that the more scrutiny, the more light is shone on these processes, I think that might help uh, improve the quality of our MPs than just if we leave it to, in some cases, just a few dozen local activists. In many ways, it's a shame that the selection process doesn't get much attention. These microcosms of national politics bring out some weird and wonderful moments. A constituency can sometimes go decades without picking a new MP, so the process can be just as important as it is exciting. Here's Michael and Isabel with some of their favourite selection process moments. Desperate to find a local connection in, in one way or another. And I mentioned that you know some claims have been conceived in a, a constituency, which is obviously something that that no local party is going to spend that much time probing. Um, but there are other um, quite entertaining ways in which some people who've gone on to be MPs have uh, demonstrated their local connection. So Chris Philp, who uh, is a Conservative MP, uh, he went for a number of uh, seats in the South East um, uh, and on his selection list, it had a picture of him um, embracing his horse, Remy, uh, and the caption, my horse is stabled locally. Um, which must have been hugely disruptive for Remy the Horse, uh, given that Chris Felt went for a number of different selections. Not all of them uh, want to toe the party line. Some of them have different ways of getting um, attention. Uh, I know Labour HQ in 2015 had to turn down a funding request from one candidate who wanted to launch their campaign on the back of an elephant. Um, and it was considered that not a great use of campaign funding to hire an elephant. There's so many little tricks that go on. Um, I mean, uh, th th one of my favourites is that Margaret Thatcher was never actually chosen for Finchley in 19... She got elected to Finchley in 1959, but the, and the selection was the year before, 58. And uh, at the selection meeting, she actually lost by uh, two votes to a man who'd won the Victoria Cross in the, in the Second World War. And the But the chairman of the Con Finchley Conservatives was so impressed by it the 32-year-old Margaret Thatcher, it's very unusual to have a woman in those days, uh, that he he fiddled the vote and switched two votes the other way to ensure that she won, <laughs> thinking that the VC winner uh, would have no trouble uh, getting a seat any, uh, somewhere else. Uh, well, he never did. Uh, but uh, Margaret Thatcher, anyway, that was really the beginning of her proper political career. Thank you so much to all of our guests on the episode, Michael Crick, Heidi Alexander, Francis Scott, Adam Thompson, and Isabel Hartman. This episode was written by Politics Home reporter Eleanor Langford, and the editor was Laura Silver. That was also the last in this series of How Westminster Works, but we'll be back with another episode of The Rundown next week to discuss the final few days of the Tory Leadership Contest. So to listen in, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home, or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and thanks for listening.